0: Amen. So I'm going to invite you, if you will, to turn your Bibles with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. We are going to be in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. So I'm excited this morning because we are beginning a new series for this summer. It'll at least be for this summer, and if the Lord leads me to extend it, we'll just keep on rolling. This series is going to be from the book of Isaiah. We are going to be looking at Isaiah chapters 40 through 55, and I'm going to be picking out some of the passages in that section of Isaiah. It's three sections of Isaiah. 1 to 39, and the second section is 40 to 55, and then 56 to 66 is the third section. So I'm going to focus on that second section, and that section has classically been called the trial of the false gods. Trial of the false gods. That's where Isaiah really takes his aim at idolatry, at the follies of idolatry, and he contrasts the true God, who he really is, with all the false gods of the nations around him, and even the false gods that have infected Israel itself, the idolatry that's creeped into God's own people. And the goal of the series is to see three things. is to see who God really is. It's to see, in light of who he is, who we really are. And then, in light of those two realities to then be ready to recognize the absolute mind-boggling mercy of that God towards us. And in that sort of triangular relationship, who is God? Who am I? What do I deserve from that God? And yet, what do I actually get from that God? Isaiah 40 to 55 is a beautiful section of scripture, and we're going to be looking at that section, to figure out, to learn more about who God is. This is about the doctrine of God. This is something that we take for granted. Sure, we all know who God is. Let's get on to something more interesting, something a little deeper, something that's not so 101, so basic. Hold on. Who God is is something that we start with. It's something that centers us in the middle, and it's something that we finish with. We never get past who God is in all of his infinite perfections. So we need to go back to who God is. And the hope for this series is that by seeing who he really is, revisiting these basic truths about who our God is, it will begin to change who we are. And that we will experience more depth, more growth, more passion, more insight, more sensitivity to sin, more longing for holiness, more desperation to know this God to be known by Him. This is the kind of thing that our Reformed and Presbyterian and Puritan forefathers went to when they wanted the church to be revived. Now, I trust that most of you are revived to begin with so that you can be revived. But this series is meant to lay open the depths of who God is and to expose the depths of who we are to prepare us to receive God in his infinite mercy, and let that begin to transform how we live. So that's where we're going, Isaiah 40 to 55. This week, we're starting out in Isaiah 6, because this is going to be a setup for the whole series. The whole series is in a compact form right here in Isaiah 6. And so we start here to get a preview for where we're going in the next few weeks. So I'm going to ask you please stand with me as we read Holy Scripture, Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. This is God's holy word for us, his people. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is God's holy word for us as people. Let's ask him to bless our time in this word. Father, we ask that you indeed would come and bless the reading and now especially the preaching of your word, that you would Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. You would open our hearts to receive it. Give us ears to hear. Conform us into the image of Christ. Transform our minds to know you and love you. Renew us today. Revive us. Reform us. Show us who you are. And in that sight, may we see a God of majesty and mercy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, now I can move around. I like to move. A.W. Tozer once said this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What do you think is the most important thing about you? If you're having a conversation with a friend or maybe a stranger, you just happen to strike up a conversation, doing some chit-chat, and you said, someone said to you, let me ask you a question. What do you think is the most important thing about you? I imagine this wouldn't be our answer. Tozer says, what we think about when we think about God He's more important than anything else about us. I wonder if you think that's true. Who do you think God is? Who do you imagine Him to be? What's He like? What are His ways in the world? What you think about God Tells you a lot about yourself. And what you think God is tells you who you think you are. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of self go together. Your true beliefs about yourself will go up or down in direct proportion to your true beliefs about God. It's amazing, and I mentioned this in Sunday school, the Sunday school lesson began with a quotation from Calvin on this topic. And I did not look ahead at that chapter to know that Sunday school was going to be about basically this topic. So it's just thrilling to see God weave things together. Well, I brought with me Calvin's Institutes. I wouldn't bring just any book into the pulpit besides the Bible. <laughs> Calvin, I want to read a section of Calvin to you on this very topic. Your true beliefs about yourself will go up or down in direct proportion to your true beliefs about God. Listen to Calvin. He says, So long as we do not look beyond the earth, we are quite pleased with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue. We address ourselves in the most flattering terms and seem only less than demigods. But should we once begin to raise our thoughts to God and reflect what kind of being He is and how absolute the perfection of that righteousness and wisdom and virtue to which as a standard we are bound to be conformed what formerly delighted us by its false show of righteousness will become polluted with the greatest iniquity. You hear what Calvin's saying? That we think we are so wise, so grand, so clean, so pure, so innocent. It's why we defend ourselves every time we get into an argument with someone because we know we have to be right. We couldn't have done anything wrong. Not me. We think that we are so grand, but when we once look up from ourselves and stop comparing ourselves to those around us and feeling like we're doing pretty good compared to that guy or that woman, and we look at the standard of perfect, pure, holy righteousness that we must be conformed to, the standard that we will be judged by on the last day, at once when we look up and see who God is and what kind of being He is, we begin to see ourselves in the proper light. Our vision of God goes up and our view of ourselves proportionately must come down because we do not Measure up. He says, our false show of righteousness will become polluted with the greatest iniquity. Calvin goes on, what strangely imposed upon us under the name of wisdom will disgust us by its extreme folly. Our wisdom compared to God's becomes extreme folly. And what presented the appearance of vigor, of virtuous energy will be condemned as the most miserable impotence. And Calvin concludes by saying, so far are those qualities in us which seem most perfect from corresponding to the divine purity. What we're after in this series is true piety, true religion, which is the aim of the gospel, The purpose of the gospel isn't simply to forgive you of your sins and leave you forgiven, but still a mess. Forgiven, but unholy. Forgiven, but ungodly. Unrighteous. Still a prisoner to sin, just not condemned by sin. The gospel doesn't simply remove our guilt. The Gospel goes much further. The whole point of the Gospel is to restore us lost and miserable creatures fallen and condemned in Adam to be true children of God recovered and reformed in Christ. One more line from Calvin on this point. Calvin says, In this way, we must learn to expect and ask all things from God and thankfully ascribe to Him whatever we receive. For this sense of the divine perfections is the proper master to teach us piety out of which true religion springs. True Christian living, true Christian faith, a real Christian life, what he calls true religion, it comes out of True piety. And where do we learn the true piety that should be in our hearts? We learn it from seeing who God is. He says, by piety, I mean that union of reverence and love to God, which the knowledge of His benefits inspires. For until, man, for, for until men feel that they owe everything to God, that they are cherished by His paternal care and that He is the author of all their blessings so that nothing is to be looked for away from Him, they will never submit to Him in voluntary obedience. No, unless they place their entire happiness in Him, they will never yield up their whole selves to Him in truth and sincerity. Thus far, Calvin. All of this begins with the knowledge of God in His majesty. In that knowledge, we come to know our own true wretchedness as sinners. And only then has the soil of our hearts been tilled and made ready to receive the knowledge of God's mercy, which He discloses to us in Christ. Until I see my infinitely deep need for the mercy of God. It will not seem like good news. It will seem like an offer of something that we can do without. So these then are the three points this morning. Knowing our God, knowing ourselves, and knowing our Savior. And all three of these are set forth in our passage in Isaiah 6. And this will encapsulate where we're going for this whole new series. So let's turn to our passage and begin with knowing our God. If you had to identify one attribute of God as his primary or his most fundamental attribute, which one would you choose? Now, there are some that say it's an invalid question. God doesn't have an attribute that's more fundamental than all the other ones. And that's that's a fair point. But if you had to pick, which one would you go for? If there is such an attribute, I suggest that the best biblical candidate is holiness holiness. And the reason I think it's the best biblical candidate is because it's the one attribute that contains and entails all the other ones. You get this one, you get all the rest. It can't be power. Power doesn't imply any of the other attributes can't be wisdom. Wisdom doesn't imply really any of the other attributes except maybe God's knowledge, His omniscient, all-knowing mind. That's a little better. But the one that gets you all the rest is holiness. It's the one attribute that contains and entails all the other divine perfections. In our text, the angels encircling the heavenly throne do not cry out, Good, good, good! They don't cry out, merciful, merciful, merciful. <laughs> they don't even say, love, love, love. Which is what most people would probably pick. They don't say, mighty, mighty, mighty is the Lord of hosts. The angels that are closest to God, these seraphim, who encircle his throne day and night, and never cease to sing His praise, what do they cry? They say, Holy, Holy, Holy. No other divine attribute is given this kind of threefold repetition in Scripture. Now this is significant. This threefold repetition, it's not used very much in the Bible, but it does come up. It's used to elevate something to the superlative degree, to the highest possible level. For example, this threefold repetition is used in Ezekiel 21-27 where the prophet is talking about the destruction of a city. And he says, a ruin, 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 I will make it. And his point is, I am going to utterly destroy this city. A ruin, ruin, ruin it will be. Likewise now, the holiness of God is thus exalted. Holy, holy, holy. He is utterly holy. Infinite in His holiness. Holy to the highest degree. And God's holiness means that He is absolutely sacred Set apart, pure and unique. We tend to think about holiness as just clean or innocent or pure. But holiness at its most basic level means set apart, different, unique, sacred. And that's what God is. He is sacred and set apart and pure and unique to the highest imaginable, highest conceivable, greatest possible degree. It's His thrice holiness. And thrice holiness means that God is utterly incomparable. Listen to these texts of Scripture that, that ascribe holiness to God. Exodus fifteen eleven. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Isaiah 40, 25, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Holy means there's none like me. Different, unique, set apart, incomparable. 1 Samuel 2, 2, There is none holy like the Lord, For there is none besides you, there is no rock like our God. The absolute holiness of God means that He's utterly incomparable. The absolute holiness of God permeates the entirety of His nature and all His other attributes, and it pervades all His ways and works. Because God is utterly holy, utterly unique, He is essentially perfect. Which means all God's attributes are His infinite perfections. God's holiness, therefore, is His unique perfection and His perfect uniqueness. We put those together. God's holiness is His perfect uniqueness and His unique perfection. His being, His knowledge, His power, His presence, His will and His ways and His works, all that He is, all that He has, all that He does is characterized by His unique perfection. Thus, the thrice holiness of Isaiah 6 seems to me to be the best biblical candidate for God's primary attribute. If there is such a thing, God at bottom is Holy. And if you get his utter holiness, you get everything else as well. What it means to be the greatest conceivable being is to be holy, holy, holy. Now, the rest of the details in Isaiah's vision tell us what this God of essential and utter holiness is like. This is what we're after. What's he like? What does holiness look like in action? Notice what the text says. It says, in the, let's see, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Notice the contrast. The king of Israel, Uzziah, who reigned for something like 55 years. Some people were born when he was king and died while he was still king. Some people lived their whole lives and Uzziah was king from start to finish. Uzziah finally dies and Isaiah's in the temple and he sees this vision of God on his throne and he says, in the year that our king, who seemed like he reigned forever, 55 years, goodness gracious, he's gone. But the Lord is still upon his throne. God was on His throne when Isaiah was born, and God is on His throne when Isaiah leaves this earth. This means God is eternal, immortal, immutable, unchanging. In the year that Uzziah dropped dead, God sat comfortably on His eternal throne. It says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. He is a king, high and lifted up. He is sovereign. His throne is in heaven as He sits upon not a throne in Jerusalem or a throne upon earth, but in a heavenly exalted throne high above all other rule and authority and dominion. He is glorious. It says that the train of His robe filled the temple. You know the train of His robe, that part that drags the ground behind Him when He walks? This thing fills the whole temple. Just the train of His robe fills the temple. How much bigger, how much greater must He be who wears this robe? He is glorious. And it says the the whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah is in a temple and he sees God's throne in the temple. God has a temple throne. God is seated in the place of worship. He is not just a glorious king in the heavens. He is the one to be worshipped. He is the one worthy of all worship. We also see that he's almighty. These seraphim, the greatest and mightiest creatures you could imagine, are his constant attendants. They encircle him, doing his will, serving him and the the whole mount zion quakes as they call out the praises of this god verse 4 the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke the earth trembles before this god it shakes in its very foundations at the praises of heaven to this glorious mighty god he is eternal He's sovereign, He's glorious and worthy, He's almighty, and finally He is pure. Absolutely pure. Notice what these seraphim are doing. Verse 2, Above Him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. You don't need six wings to fly. It says with two they flew. So what are these other four wings about? Well, He tells you. Two of them are to cover the face. Two of them are to cover the feet. They're crying out to God, but they're not looking at Him. For the same reason that you're not going to go out this afternoon and stare straight into the sun. Because your eyes would be absolutely overwhelmed. Dazzled, burnt, ruined. You lose your sight if you stare into the sun. These heavenly beings cannot look directly into the glory. It would sear their eyes. And they cannot let their feet touch this throne because they're too unclean. Now, they've never sinned. They're not fallen angels. They're not evil spirits. They're obedient. They're perfect and righteous. They've never sinned. They've never disobeyed. They're the closest To God of any other creatures. And yet they themselves recognize. I am too unclean. Too impure. I cannot touch this throne. Lest I defile it. That's how pure and holy. This throne truly is. They protect themselves. By not looking. So that their eyes aren't burned. And they protect God's throne. From their defilement. By covering their feet. And with the other two. They fly. And encircle and they praise this unimaginably, unspeakably majestic God. If this is who God is, who are you? What comes into your mind when you think about God will tell you who you think you are. By knowing our God, we come to know ourselves. And this is exactly what happened to Isaiah. Look at verse 5. Isaiah says, after he sees this vision of the Lord on his throne, he says, woe is me. Woe is me. In other words, what a wretched state I am in. How unfortunate is my lot. How dreadful is my condition. He is eternal. I am a creature of but a moment. A speck of dust that's here for a second. As the psalm we sang, we're like grass that sprouts up in the morning and by the evening we're scorched and we've faded away. We are but a vapor and a breath. When you breathe out on a cold morning and you see your breath for a second, two seconds, and then it's gone. So fleeting am I a small creature of time and space. God, the infinite, the eternal, who had no beginning and will have no end. The everlasting God whose throne is forever. Look at Him on that throne and look at me. I am but momentary, decaying, shifting and changing. Woe is me. He is sovereign. And I am at His mercy. I am not wise. I am foolish. I am powerless. I am incompetent. I have no power in and of myself. I have no control. I don't control my life and myself the way I think. I don't have rule over this world. I don't get to call the shots and make the decisions. God doesn't treat me on my terms. He is sovereign and I am at His mercy. Woe is me. He is glorious and worthy. I am lowly and base. I am unworthy. Indeed, in my sin, I am perverse, twisted, distorted. If the unfallen angels won't even touch His throne because they're afraid they're going to get it dirty, how much more a man like me of unclean lips must I stay far away from this perfect, pure throne? He is almighty, and I am weak and beggarly, feeble and frail, a mere worm upon the earth. He is pure, but I am full of filth and iniquity, impurity, indeed rottenness, down to the core, in my fallen condition in Adam. Woe is me. If that's who God is, then like Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am lost. I am lost, I have no good, I have no worthiness and no merit, I have no right to his grace, I have no title to his heaven, I have no claim on the mercy of his son, I have no beauty or loveliness to catch God's eye. I am indeed in my sin, in Adam I am accursed, I am damned without hope and without God and under his wrath. I am utterly undone, for he is utterly holy. Woe is me, for I am lost, Isaiah says. He says, for I am a man of unclean lips. Unclean lips. If the seraphim must cover their faces and feet, how much more must I? How dare I trample his courts with my unclean feet and speak so perversely with my uncovered face and my unclean lips. He says, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. All of us are lost and stained with sin. We can no longer compare ourselves with each other and make ourselves feel better that, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. We are all equally condemned before this God and on the verge of dropping body and soul into hell. And why do we know we're like this? Where did we get this idea? Isaiah says, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we see God for who He is, we recognize that we are undone lost, unclean, and that everyone else is in the same boat with us and it's sinking. Woe is me. Without the knowledge of God, we will have no true knowledge of ourselves. We will think we are not as bad as I just said. We will say, yeah, that's nice. I don't really believe it. without a high view of God, we will have a much too high view of ourselves. Without a clear knowledge of God's holiness, we will have a completely muddled idea of how desperately sinful and lost we really are. However, once we know our God as He reveals Himself in the Scriptures, then our knowledge of ourselves comes into proper biblical alignment. And at that point, and only at that point, is our hearts and minds truly prepared to receive the knowledge of our Savior. We have to let the Bible convince us that we're lost. And until we really figure out how lost and how tragic and desperate our situation is, we will not recognize the God of mercy. Until we see the God of majesty, we cannot see ourselves properly. But once we do, now the ground has been tilled, now we can be good soil, so when the word is scattered upon the good soil, it can take root and bear fruit. The fruit of the gospel. A Christian. Now that we recognize our estate of sin and misery, we can have eyes to see not only God's majesty, but also His mercy. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah sees God on his throne and then he sees himself as undone and he can cries out and confesses that to God and God doesn't squash him. <laughs> that's what I was waiting. That's the other shoe that was that should have dropped, right? If that's who God is and I really am lost, then the next scene should be the hammer crushing me. It should be the thunder and the lightning and the judgment and the fire and the, and the and hell and isn't that what should happen next? I mean, the the throne room is shaking, the foundations are shuddering, smoke's everywhere. You think it's the smoke of hell rising up with its hands to grab Isaiah and drag him down? But it's not. It's not. God responds to Isaiah's outcry with pure mercy. And that's the gospel wrapped up in verses 6 and 7. When you put 1 to 5 beside 6 and 7, you see the response of the gospel. He says, One of the seraphim flew to me. Flew to me. God directed a mediator To come to Isaiah. To take away his sin and his guilt. He dispatched an angel. One of those creatures flying around. He said, go down to Isaiah. Take away his sin. And in the gospel, God sends a mediator. To take away our sins. I love how it says one of the seraphim flew to me. And you can imagine God seeing us wallowing in our lost condition. And telling his son go my son fly to them. Fly to them from heaven. And take away their sin. God dispatched not some angel to recover us. He sent his son. Who makes these seraphim seem like bacteria floating around in a pond somewhere. That's how much more glorious and mighty is your Christ. And he dispatches that one to come from his right hand to go and to take away their sin. Christ flew to us in the incarnation and took up our sin and went to the cross and bore it and canceled it. And it is finished. Isaiah says he sees this angel take a burning coal from the altar. Again, this is the temple, so the altar is where the burnt offering has been made. A sacrifice has been offered on this altar. And he takes one of the coals and comes to Isaiah and sticks it to his lips. The seraph plucks a flaming hot coal from the altar and touches it to that unholy part of the prophet that he had confessed, a man of unclean lips. This hot coal blazed in the sacred flame of the altar and it cleanses Isaiah of sin. And when we repent and cry for mercy, God takes the burning coal of Christ from the altar of the cross and applies Him to us that we might have our guilt and sin removed. Jesus offered Himself as that sacrifice under the flames of God's judgment and now God takes that burning coal of Christ and applies him to you. And when he does, your guilt is taken away and your sins are atoned for. Before we said we got to keep our feet covered so we don't get the throne dirty. we got to stay far away so we don't bring defilement on God's holy, pure throne. Now God comes to us and he touches us. But what happens is we don't get him dirty we don't he doesn't contract our filth we contract his holiness whenever you see a, a like a some dirt or a spill or some kind of stain on your counter. the way you clean your counter is not by spreading the dirt out all over the counter <laughs> right you'd want to wipe it up that'd be really weird if you spread the all that filth everywhere, and think, oh yeah, now it's clean. Really counterintuitive. But what happens here is God takes away our filthiness. He covers us. The clean spot on the counter doesn't spread out to cover the dirt. But when we come into contact with the Lord of utter holiness, we contract His holiness. And our sin and guilt is taken Away, We do not defile Him when He touches us with His grace. He heals us of our defilement. The burning coal from the altar, Christ from the cross, redemption accomplished and applied to us, takes away our sin. Oh, Christian, that you would return to this fiery altar daily and feel yourself warmed by the flames of this great God. To come near this fire every day and feel the flames of Christ and to warm your soul by Him. Is there coolness in your prayer life? Is there coolness in your heart for Christ? Are you no longer stirred in your affections for Him? Are you no longer moved to sit here in this place and hear the word proclaimed. It's just another duty that I feel like I gotta do cause I'm a Christian. Is there drudgery? Is there coldness? Is there lukewarmness? Is there disinterest? Are you bored with your Christianity? Oh Christian, warm yourself by this fire and look unto Jesus. Does your heart no longer melt before him? Then you're too far from the fire. Is your zeal leaking out and seeping away? O Christian, fly to this altar and fetch these hot coals daily that the flame of faith and love and joy and obedience and godliness might be rekindled. In the Gospel of John, Jesus quotes one of the verses just after our passage he quotes verse 10 Isaiah 6:10 Jesus quotes that verse and then John the gospel writer adds these words Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him John 12:41 John says the god That Isaiah saw seated on the throne was Jesus. The God of Isaiah 6 is Christ the Lord seated upon his throne. John says, Isaiah saw him, he saw his glory and spoke of Christ. This, O Christian, is your God. Know him. Know Him. He is a God of majesty and mercy for you. He is a God of majesty and of mercy for you. Come. Know Him. See Him for who He is in His majesty. Behold yourself lost without Him, but see yourself covered with His mercy when you come before Him in Christ and trust in His gospel promise. Knowing God is where it starts. Knowing God is the foundation of true piety in your heart, true zeal in your life, true obedience in your day. Knowing Him is the foundation of true Christianity. So come with me to this flame. Come with me. And let us behold our God. Let's pray. Almighty and holy God, exalted on your throne, what a glorious God you are. How indescribable truly is your great power, glory, majesty. In the depths of your holiness, we cannot plumb the depths. There's no bottom to your majesty. It just keeps going. Oh Lord, give us a sight and a taste for you on your throne. May a God enthroned be the one we love and cherish. And may we stand before you, seeing you for who you are, knowing ourselves for who we are, so that we can know your mercy and savor it and love it and draw near to Christ and look unto Him and feel ourselves full of His glorious grace to know that He is with us, changing us, helping us, interceding for us, that He's everything for us. May our hearts be warmed today as we draw near to Christ as we stand and proclaim His greatness his majesty, and his mercy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.